Good morning, everyone. We are starting a new series this month because this month we celebrate Christmas. And it is great to have Christmas songs again, singing them. Uh, it's great one time a year, uh, one season a year. Uh, real quick, did someone forget their phone up here on the table? No? Okay. Um, just an odd place to leave your phone, but I'm sure the owner will pick it up at some point. Uh, so this is the start of our Christmas series entitled Christmas Isn't Cancelled. How many people are excited about that? Christmas is not cancelled. And uh, it's designed to give us some encouragement that this time of year, even though we may see things going around us in the world that are challenging and difficult and uncertain, uh, we have a Savior that is very certain. We have a Savior that is very victorious. We have a Savior that is very worthy to be praised, worshipped, and honored among his people. And uh, it reminds me of this gentleman I found out about called Jared Lang. Uh, Jared uh, was born in the late 1800s in Germany, and uh, he had this nagging question he was asking his mom throughout the year. When is Christmas? When is Christmas? When is Christmas? When is Christmas? So finally, his mom in the late 1800s decided to help her son Jared and help him figure out when Christmas was in relationship to the start of December. So on December 1st, she built this cardboard cutout of a house, and every day Jared would put a candle on that cardboard cutout, and once it reached 24 candles, it was Christmas Day. The first iteration of the Advent calendar um, burned down. You can imagine a little kid with candles next to a cardboard house. That cardboard house did not last very long, so what she did later on that month of December is she actually created it with little pieces of candy. So every day there'd be a new little piece of candy on the board and he would take that piece of candy and he would know pretty soon it's going to be December 25th. Well, Jared grew up and started a publishing company in Germany in the 1810s and published the very first advent calendar. Has anyone ever grown up with an advent calendar? We had some pretty boring ones growing up. It was a piece of paper on a wall. Well, obviously it was, we bought it. Uh, and you just open up a little flap on it, day one, and you saw a picture. Day two, there was a picture. Day three, there was a picture. It was, it was just pictures. And um, that was not very exciting. And so my mom thought, well, let's add candy. And of course, I was super excited. And so she made these long things that we hung on the wall that had a, a piece of Hershey Kiss tied to a string, 25 of them. So every day we would take one, and eat it, you know, my sister and I. And uh, one year, I think it was the second year we probably did it, uh, we left the house, came back, and our dog that we had, Murphy, on December 2nd, ate a total of 48 pieces of Hershey chocolate. Didn't take the wrapper off of all of them. Called the vet right away, because uh, we found Murphy laying right next to these things that she had tore down off the wall and chocolate hanging out of her mouth and little tinfoil wrappers everywhere. And, you know, called the vet, you know, is this going to be dangerous for the dog? She ate all this, said, well, she's going to be uncomfortable for the night, leave her outside. 
but it's not dark chocolate, so it's not that bad for, for, for dogs. It's dark chocolate that's really bad for dogs. Uh, but she had one massive stomach ache. I mean, the poor thing's belly was full of 48 pieces of Hershey Kisses. Uh, so that was my first real memory of the advent calendar, always asking that or answering that question, when is Christmas? When is Christmas? And thanks to Jared, we now have advent calendars and we have candy and we have lots of different ways that we can count down. I've not looked at it, but I'm sure you can find an app on your phone that counts down how many days to Christmas at any day of the year. Um, the good news is we don't have to wait for Christmas to happen. The original Christmas has already happened. All of the meaning of Christmas has happened. All of the, the promises of Christmas has happened. We are reliving every year the celebration of the events that have already taken place. But when this was first discussed among God's people, and it was discussed a long time ago to Adam and Eve, but it was further revealed to God's people through time, eventually, in the book of Isaiah, through the prophet of Isaiah, God really made this clear as could be. But 740 years passed between the events that happened in Isaiah chapter 9, which we will look at this morning, and the birth of Christ. 740 years of waiting for this promise to take place. 740 years. Can you imagine telling your kids, we got to wait 700 years, 600 years? I mean, if, in our lifespan, that would never happen. It's hard enough waiting 24 days. Sometimes it's hard to wait that last day before Christmas. I understand that, but can you imagine having to wait 740 years after the clear promise of Isaiah to get the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So Christmas, ultimately, for us and from our perspective of history, reminds us that God, fill in the blank. Christmas reminds us that God, what, what, what? Christmas ultimately reminds us of this very simple phrase. He keeps his promises. Christmas, every time we celebrate it, every time we have a pageant, an event, a song, an advent wreath, any time we have an advent calendar, any time we send or receive a Christmas card, we are declaring in one way or another that God keeps promises. God keeps them. And you might say, 740 years is a long time for God to fulfill his promise. In God's view of history, 740 years is like a half a day, because we're told a thousand, a thousand years is like a, a day in God's mind. There is no time spent when God thinks about things. It simply is. So 740 days is like a half a day to God. It really is not a long stretch of time. So we're going to look at the book of Isaiah and see a very familiar passage to us, but we're going to see it in that expectation of, of Christmas is right around the corner. We can count the days down to where we see God fulfilling his promises. Now, even before we get to Isaiah chapter 9, the end of Isaiah chapter 8 has an amazing passage from verse um, uh, 19 through verse 22. And in, you know, in try, instead of trying to summarize it, 
Let me just read those verses. It's not part of the slides, but it gives us a great context, and we may be able to see some of our current day's life in this passage of Isaiah 8, which makes Isaiah chapter 9 even so much more exciting. In Isaiah chapter 8, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? So we had a problem in Israel. Israel was confused about where do we go for answers? When we want to find something out, who do we ask? Well, it's been a long tradition among the pagans to consult the dead. And Isaiah says, why are we consulting the dead about the living? Don't we want to go to the living God for that? Well, of course, the answer is yes. He continues and says, consult God's instruction and testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. And then he describes the condition of the people. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward and curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Without God, they're in utter darkness. And then God says the following, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the lands of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So God says, there's a time where the people are in distress, but there will be a better time when that distress is done away with and that relief will be seen across the seas. And so in the minds of Israel, that means the rest of the world. The rest of the world is going to see and experience this relief. The relief from darkness. The relief of stress. They are going to be in a place of rest. And then, in verse 2 of chapter 9 of Isaiah, God starts to tell His people how that distress, how that utter darkness is going to be done away with. He starts by telling us that the gift of God, Christmas itself, brings people out of darkness. He says, people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. There cannot be anything greater for a people who are living in darkness to finally have light, to people who are living in pain and suffering to finally have relief, to people who are living in war to have peace whatever negative thing that you can attribute to this darkness, God says there's going to be a moment where there is going to be a shining light in the midst of those people that brings hope, that brings warmth, that brings comfort, that brings security, that brings relief. And God, of course, is talking about His Son. He's not talking about a flashlight or a light bulb or a candle or, a, or even the sun itself. He's talking about His Son, Jesus Christ who describes himself as the light of the world, who describes himself as the one who brings light and life to everyone that heeds his word and sees his calling and believes upon him. So the people who were walking in darkness, they will see a great light. They will see a great hope. They will see 
help, relief. He continues in verse 3 that this gift of God of Christmas also brings joy. It not only delivers us from darkness, but this promise that God keeps also brings people joy. Verse 3, it says, You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. I have no idea what it's like to harvest something and rejoice over it. I have no idea what it's like to divide up plunder after being a victorious warrior. But I do know what it's like to bring groceries home from the store and be excited about bringing groceries into the house knowing we can eat this week. I know what that kind of feeling is to pay the bills to know we're okay this month. I know what some of those reliefs are like. But God says those kind of major reliefs in your life is what it is like when you see the promise come to pass. When you see the fulfilled promise in Jesus Christ, you will be joyful and increased joy. And this goes out to all the nations. And when it says nations, especially in the Old Testament, it's the word that we get our word language from. Okay, It's speaking our language. So it really means different ethnic groups, not nations as in, you know, uh, United States, Canada, Mexico, is speaking of different types of people. So as the word goes forth about this relief of darkness, there is going to be this immense response to it that's joyful. And the way Isaiah can describe it, it's like, hey, you know what a harvest is like? When you get through with a harvest and it is all in your barns and the work is done, you know how that feels? That's how this is going to feel. You know what it's like when you are victorious and everybody's getting their first place trophy and gold medal? That's what it's going to be like. You know what it's like when you bring the groceries home and God has provided? That's what it's going to be like. You know what it's like when you haven't seen someone in a long time and you see them finally years later and you are just filled with excitement at seeing them? That's what it's like. You know what it's like when Christmas morning arrives and you get to open up your presents? That's what it's like. There is a tremendous joy an outburst of excitement over what God's promise is doing, coming to pass. Great joy comes by way of the gift that God brings us. Verse 4 continues this theme of the gift of God, and it brings us victory over oppression. Now, we've already seen that, especially when we look at the context in chapter 8. Great oppression, great uncertainty, no, no solid answers. I don't know where to go for help. You go to God. Don't go to others. You go to God for that help. And in that help, God says, I'm going to bring you out of darkness. And he says in verse 4 specifically, as, or For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Now, Isaiah gives Israel a context of, remember what it was like under the rule of a tyrant. Do you remember what that was like? We probably haven't experienced that. We may have experienced a bad boss. Okay, We may have even experienced bad parenting. We may have experienced some bad political elected officials. But we have never experienced destitute slavery. We haven't. None of us have ever been slaves. None of us. None of us' lives were on the line every single moment of our existence, dependent upon someone else 100% of the time, and they could take our life at any moment. 
oppressed, oppressed, oppressed. We haven't lived like that. I'm not making light of current circumstances. I'm not making light of our past. But it's nothing like oppressive slavery. Nothing like that. God says, when you are relieved of that, my promise is seen. When you are relieved of that heaviness, the promise is seen. The greatest burden off of my shoulders ever, ever in my entire life, and I think this relates to every single individual who has experienced this later on in life, is that moment of salvation. That moment where I realized that my, my working towards being right with God didn't matter. All of the burden of my own sin, my own guilt, my own shame, all of my past experiences, all of my past failings, all the negative things that happened in my past were nothing in front of the cross. And John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, which is a wonderful Christian book, I think it's the second most selling book in all of history next to the Bible. Uh, He describes this individual whose name is Christian walking to the cross of Calvary with this huge backpack on and this bag of burdens. It was his sin. And the description that John Bunyan gives on what it's like to relieve that burden and to stand straight up, I think we can all relate to. We've all felt some weighty decision we had to make. We all dreaded that letter or phone call from a doctor. We've, we've all had those kind of experiences where after the fact, and I say this a lot, you just breathe in, you breathe out, there's just this, oh, that's over. That's done. Take that feeling of relief and you just amplify it a hundredfold. I don't care how far you amplify it. God says, that's what it's like when I relieve the burden. It's gone. When you come to me seeking the promise of a Savior, the burden is gone. And it is a full and complete release of that burden. And if you are going through this, or you have someone that you love that is going through this tremendous burden of life, of living, of of trying to be obedient, of trying to do the right thing, of trying to be a good person, and they don't have Jesus in their life, That's the message they need to hear, is that burden and that stress and that heartache, that longing, that fear can go away. And it can go away like that. There's no process. It's, I believe. And Jesus ushers in this immense sense and well-being of peace and joy, satisfaction, and an unburdening of everything that is plaguing your thoughts and your emotions. And Jesus says, this is one of God's gifts when you see Christmas. An unburdening victory over oppression. Next, verse 5, kind of picking up that same thing. Verse 5 of Isaiah 9 says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood Uh, will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The gift of God, the gift of Christmas, brings an end to war. Now, Isaiah is not... Well, Isaiah clearly is not talking about battles between people. 
There are wars. The gospel does bring in an end to those wars. If, if everyone was a Christian and every nation followed Christ, and, if, and if, if Christianity was the norm throughout the world, there would be far less physical battles and armies needed. There would be, especially if people were living consistently with that gospel message. But ultimately, ultimately, the battle that everyone fights is the battle between themselves and God. Ultimately. Paul says this a number of times, and it's not just Paul. But before we were believers, we were enemies of God. We were at war with Him. I remember clearly hating Him. I remember clearly cursing Him. I remember clearly doing the opposite of what He said was good because I didn't want anything to do with Him. I remember clearly being disobedient simply because I could. Causing pain simply because I could. Hating because I could. I wasn't a friend of his. He loved me before I even knew it. But from my perspective, I was at war. I was an enemy of his. So is everybody that doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're at war with him. And God calls it a spiritual battle. He calls it a, a darkness battle. Not in some kind of Star Wars kind of, you know, two different forces in the universe that battle with each other, but in a real God against sin. And God has already gained victory. We're just still fighting even though we're dead. We're still fighting it. That's the battle that ends. When Christmas has been realized and that gift and that promise has been realized in us, the fighting against God ends. Now, it doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean all of a sudden everything I do is all lovey and all, you know, absolute obedience. We still struggle with sin. But there isn't this war between us and God. We're now family. We're adopted into His family. One of the most beautiful concepts of Scripture is that when you believe in Christ, you are not just simply saved, you are now family with God as your father, Christ as your brother, and one another as our brothers and sisters. There's a beautiful family unity that occurs when we are part of God's family. The war ends and family relationship begins. That's a promise of what Christmas brings and does in our lives. Next in Isaiah chapter 6, I mean, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The gift of God in Christmas brings a champion. Listen to verse 6. And this is probably the verse that most of us recognize from Christmas stories. For to us a child is born. Nothing really fantastic about that. I mean, it, it is a miracle of life, but children are born all the time. But listen to the description of this champion. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will have a weighty responsibility of rule. He will rule, and it will be his responsibility to rule. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't think there's really very much for me to explain out of that verse. 
the words are crystal clear. That this child of promise that is 740 years later from when this was written and spoken, this child is going to be magnificent. This child is going to be a champion. This child is going to be victorious. This child is going to be unique. Now, every child that is born is unique and individual and special and given life by God and made in the image of God. Everyone, in that sense, is special. But this child is absolutely unique. He's not like other children. He is obedient. He is perfect. He is absolutely divine. He is God. And He is made just like us without sin. So He knows exactly the struggles we go through because He went through those struggles, yet without sin. He knows exactly what it's like to be ridiculed and made fun of, yet He didn't respond in sin. He knows exactly what it's like to be pushed aside and betrayed, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be lied about, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to have responsibility, but yet it doesn't go to his head without sin. He is a perfect child, but he is more than just perfect. He's wonderful. He speaks truth at every moment. He's a mighty God. He's able to save. He's able to bring victory. He's able to overcome oppression. He's able to end wars. He's able to give joy. He's able to rid the world of darkness. He's able to give you freedom from burdens. Scripture describes him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. While we have many kings and lords in this world, all setting themselves up with power, all setting themselves up with authority, all exercising that authority, as far as they're allowed to, Jesus doesn't need our votes or permission or a constitution or a law to rule as he rules. He's over that. He's beyond that. And so all of his promises, all of his actions, they actually happen. They happen. If we had... 1% of all the promises our politicians made during elections. We'd be living on Mars already. I mean, our society would be so advanced, there'd be no poverty, there'd be no sickness, there'd be no... I mean, it would be a utopia. It would be heaven. How many promises do politicians actually keep? I forget who it was, but the one guy, it might have been Bush Sr. who said... Yes, I'm going to have to raise taxes. And yeah, he did. He kept the promise. Not the promise I was hoping for, but he kept the promise. So sometimes they do keep promises. But wow, they promise the world and they deliver nothing. And it's not just politicians. Don't we promise to one another all the time? And we fail to deliver, don't we? Not this child. Not this son. Not this mighty God. Not this person who has the weight of the world on his shoulders, when he promises, he delivers. Because he's God. He can deliver on every single promise. He has another promise in verse 7. 
where we end this. It says, of the greatness of his government, (laughs) of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of Jehovah Almighty will accomplish this. The gift of God at Christmas in Christ is that his rule and reign is permanent. When he comes and establishes his kingdom, when he establishes his kingdom in your heart, when he brings you into his kingdom and he saves you, and you are now a daughter and son of the king, that is permanent. It does not waver. It does not change at the next election. It doesn't even change upon death. He is king forever and ever and ever. And you want to know how he accomplishes that? God says, my zeal, my passion, all of who I am is behind this promise. It will be. If this is the God who can say, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be an earth, and there's an earth. Let there be water, and there's water. Let there be life, and there's life. If this God can create everything we see and experience, even the beating of our heart and the breath in our lungs and the sight and reflection that our eyes see in our mind, who's able to connect it in our ears, who are able to hear it, if He's able to do that, which is miraculous, can He not establish His Son as our mighty God, as our King, as our Counselor, as wonderful, as a Prince that brings peace? God's wholeness is behind this activity of the coming of His Son. Everything He is stamps His approval and authority and power behind this event. That's why when this event occurred in Bethlehem 640 years from this date in Isaiah, the heavens opened up and the angels rejoiced. The day is here. That day is here in our hearts, in our lives. Something to take home, and if the elders want to come up and get ready for communion, they can. But something to take home for us, what the world and Pueblo needs more than anything else right now is not a better system of government. It's not more legislation. It's not more education. It's not more funding. But what they need to hear about is the person who has the character the wisdom and the power needed to rule for God among us. And that person is Jesus. Our main task, not just at Christmas time, but at every moment that we're given, every opportunity that God affords us, our mission, our goal, our point is to communicate to people that that person that we need in our lives is Jesus Christ. Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come before communion this morning, let this be a reminder and an encouragement to us to be steadfast in communicating to the world around us in our own unique ways that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Your promises. That He is what we need as a person, as a city, as a nation, as a world. 
Father, help to give us bravery and courage to speak about Your Son. Help us not to be discouraged at the response we may get, but let us be faithful, Father, in communicating the greatness of Your Son, who was born, who lived, who died, and was rose again to demonstrate the power of Your 